Welcome back. This is the SaaS Open Mic by Chartmogul. Our guest today is the CEO and co-founder of CapChase, Miguel Fernandez. CapChase has raised almost $1 billion to help companies grow faster with capital, insights, and tools. Miguel and I speak about revenue-based financing, current drivers and tendencies in funding and fundraising, and the metrics that distinguish the fastest-growing companies. I'm your host, Bianca Wilk, and this is my conversation with Miguel. Thank you so much for joining us on the SaaS Open Mic, Miguel. How are you? Yeah, of course, Bianca. Happy to be here. All good. Thank you. So our main conversation today is about revenue-based financing, and I definitely look forward to digging into it in more detail with you. However, before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit more about your backstory and how you got started? What really drove you to start CapChase? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So a little bit about me. So I'm originally from Spain. So I grew up there and you know, I have a background in engineering, mechanical and nuclear. And then I worked in consulting for a couple of years. I started to do like some projects for a big bank, actually touching fintech and I'm building like, a fintech accelerator. And I got really excited about it about tech in general. And then I tried to launch two companies part-time when I was working in consulting and, and none of them worked out. But then I was like, okay, I'm ready to actually move into tech and develop my career there. So I joined a pre-revenue SaaS company as the first person in sales. And then I was there for three years. I built and led sales and customer success and then international. So we actually, you know, like with two of my co-founders now who are leading the product team, we actually got to understand the dynamics of a SaaS company really, really well. And one of the problems that my team was facing in every single deal was always around the terms that customers would pay for our product. So basically, every customer wanted flexible payment terms. And if we were ready to give flexible payment terms, we would increase conversion. But we needed all the cash up front because we needed to recover our CAC. And we needed to basically you know, get money from our customers earlier so we wouldn't have to use our VC money to finance you know, those first few months of, you know, like, basically getting the customers to, to pay for, for, for the CAC. So, so yeah, you know, like that was a pain that we didn't know how to solve. And eventually what we did is we incentivized customers to pay upfront by giving them large discounts. And that, you know, like would affect our average contract value. It would affect our growth rates, our top line, and our ARR, and essentially evaluation. So that was a pain that we just thought we needed to, to suffer, right? This, this is the pain of starting a company. So then after three years... I left, I went to do my MBA at Harvard, and during my first you know, couple of weeks, I started researching with one of my other co-founders now, who was also there, who started researching different ideas at the intersection between fintech and SaaS. And you know, like four months in, we came up with the realization that there had to be a way in which SaaS companies could offer flexible payment terms, but get all the cash up front, kind of like bridging the gap between you know, the pains that we were feeling in the past. So, so we started talking with a bunch of founders, and it resonated instantly. And funders kept asking us like, hey, why don't we do this instead of on a deal by deal basis? Why don't we do it with all my customer base? Because I know that if I have you know, 10 million ARR, I'm going to get 10 million through the door at least. You know, I'm going to get more if I'm growing, but I'm going to get at least 10 million through the door over the following 12 months. So why wait if I can get some of that money upfront, reinvest it into growth, you know, and then use this as part of my financing stack? So that was something that really, really resonated with everybody. And then we, we just started to go more aggressively after it. And we raced around a few months after that realization in July 2020. And since then, you know, like our mission has remained the same, which is to help SaaS companies grow faster with capital, insights, and tools. And 
and yeah, now, you know, like fast forward a couple of years from that, we are a Series B stage company. We've raised hundreds of millions of dollars in equity, almost a billion dollars in debt. So yeah, growing very fast, solving a massive pain. And, and, you know, in the last three, four months that the whole VC market has almost like ground to a halt, we see more and more demand for our product. That's amazing. Yeah. I've been looking at CapChase and it's, it's amazing to see all that growth and development in, in just a few years. To start with, I'd like us to speak about the industry as a whole, just because I'm sure that you're observing the SaaS industry very closely. And I'm sure you've seen so many trends and tendency and drivers in the area of funding and fundraising. So from your perspective, how has fundraising changed in the last few years? Yeah. So I think that the big, big, big change that we've seen in the last few years, actually, let me talk about a couple of changes. On the one hand, COVID was a massive change. And then on the other hand, the API economy has also developed massively in the last like, three to four years. There's another phenomenon as well, which is that there are more and more like second, third, fourth time founders, right? So then like, if you go one by one, COVID, what it did is all these you know, government subsidies that happened in the US and Europe, where you know, the government would give you know, EIDL loans or PPP loans, basically like payroll protection loans to, to founders. What it meant is that founders started to use other financing sources beyond either bootstrapping or VC. And suddenly debt was a form of funds that actually served a purpose as well, right? So then a lot of companies had never used debt before. They started to use debt as a result of the subsidies that the government gave them to cope better with COVID. So then you have suddenly a whole generation of founders used to working with debt and, find, and seeing that, hey, dollars are green and you can use this money to grow, to continue to grow and to extend runway. Then to API economy, right? Like suddenly it is much easier to analyze a company in real time, you know, and understand really, really well the metrics by connecting through APIs in one click. So substituting a process that usually took a lot of time of sharing Excel documents, you know, a bunch of PDFs and a bunch of calls and so on for three clicks, connecting your data sources, and then understanding extremely well the status of a company and the future at a minimum effort for both the founder and for the for the financing company and then third second third fourth time founders what you see is that you know first time founders are you know usually focused on just growing the startup at whatever cost possible right and usually you know what happens is that when they make the first exit they suddenly see that all the effort in all those years has only resulted in an ownership of let's say between five to fifteen percent of the company at the time of an exit of course it's a small slice of a bigger cake you know it, but still like, hey, like people want to have more of the cake, right? They want to have the cake and eat it. So basically what you see is that second, third, fourth time founders, what they're doing is they're operating in a way in which they're optimizing for less dilution, right? They know the playbook of how to grow a company and they know that, hey, there are many ways in which you, you can grow the company at the same speed without selling so much of the company along the way. So then that's another massive movement where founders are looking at all the options that they have to avoid selling big chunks of the company to investors. So yeah, re related to that, my, my next question, could you just run us through all the different options of raising capital? What is, what is available to founders right now? Right. So let's think about like the, the equity fundraisers and then debt or alternative financing fundraisers. So equity, you know, there's basically four options, right? One is you use your own money and that's all the equity in the business. And then you bootstrap the company. Hey, it is super valid. Like, you know, like, you, you keep 100% of the ownership and then, yeah, you don't, have any, you don't have to report to anybody. 
The cons are, of course, that you can only reinvest the cash flows that you get from the company into the company to grow. So usually the growth profile looks like a very, 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 very almost like flat slope for many years. And then as those cash flows start accumulating, then you start to grow and grow and grow. And then it becomes exponential after a bunch of years. The other options all involve some kind of dilution. And you have, you know, basically going with angels where you get people that are like ex-operators, usually people that know about your industry and are kind of excited that they help with, you know, connections mostly and with advice. Then the second option would be VCs, which is like a flavor of you know investors that are going to buy a big chunk they usually put a lot of protections into the company to protect their stake and then they add you know in the best case scenario they, they add a bunch of connections a bunch of customers they attract talent and then they give you advice because they have portfolios and they can see you know what works and what doesn't and can you know besides being extremely smart they they can see a lot of patterns and in the worst case scenario you have somebody that's really like give you money and then they expect you to run the company according to them and then they are very annoying and so on. We've been very fortunate to only have VC investors of the first type, which is great. And then the, the other option would be crowdfunding, where you are selling bits of the company, smaller bits to a bunch of individuals. Depends on the, depending on the country, you have more regulation-friendly options versus not, but you know, like it's also a way of getting money from a bunch of retail investors and usually like no strings attached in a sense in which you don't have to report to anybody, right? So that's like equity, the universe of equity. In the universe of non-equity and what you can do, like you have government subsidies and then some kind of like debt or forms of debt. So government subsidies, every country in North America and Europe and the UK will have different forms of government subsidies from credits that are paid at a really, really low cost for a very long time. Um, all the way from that to like R&D tax redemptions where you get back some of the money that you spend in R&D. And then in debt, you have also different flavors. You have venture debt, you know, which is usually long-term dollars you know, that you get from a bank or a lending institution. They usually, you know, you pay over from 12 to like 48 months and usually have some kind of interest only period and then interest and principal amortization period. And then also what you're paying there is you're paying interest fees and then you're paying usually warrants. So they are a little bit dilutive, you know, and then, and then basically this is kind of like a, usually a manual process that takes around eight weeks to approve. They can give you material amounts of money and usually for longer periods. And then you have alternative financing, which is what CAPTCHA does, where it's primarily data-driven. So instead of documents and a long process to set up, you connect your data in three clicks, and then you get usually a percentage of your revenue in terms of availability. So imagine if you have 10 million ARR, you can get, let's say, 5 million in financing. And then that availability evolves as the company evolves in time as well. As the company grows, you can access more money. And usually, you know, like there, there's only a fee. There's only one, one simple fee. And then the flexibility of the model means that you don't have to take all the money up front, but you can take chunks to deploy over time. So you make sure that the money that you're using is deployed into a money-generating activity and not just sitting in your bank. I was just going to clarify the definition again of revenue-based financing because you said so many interesting things here. So revenue-based financing gives companies capital in, but it's in exchange for a percentage of their future revenue. So in, that's more typical in e-commerce where you get money and then you repay, let's say with 10% of your sales for the future. In SaaS, it's a little bit different because like, given that in SaaS, you almost 
can boil everything down to ARR or MRR with the revenue financing options for SaaS companies, you usually repay a fixed amount every month. So you're not paying you know, more if you grow faster. You're usually paying the same amount for the following 12 months or 24 months. And that must have a lot of benefits, correct? Yeah, yeah, of course, because you can really plan ahead and you can know exactly how much money you're going to be paying back and also how much money you can draw again in order to continue to invest. And it's aligned with customer payments as well, right? So you're not kind of like just paying off your balance sheet, but you're, you're, as the customers are paying in, then that, that amount usually and that timing is aligned with how much money you pay back. So could you tell us a little bit more about like what are the true benefits of revenue-based financing and also maybe like the, you know, things that are maybe misunderstood about this form of financing? Because I imagine it's, it's not for everyone and it, it can be mis- misunderstood sometimes. Yeah, of course. So there's some benefits from like in the process, in the structure, and then in the use of funds, right? So in the process, basically, revenue-based financing is something that you can set up in days or hours even versus months, which is like other forms of, of debt for, for SaaS companies. And then usually like, I mean, at least with captures, what you get is like, you get like your analytics back, you know, and, and kind of like a benchmark of how you're doing versus other peers. And then you also get what is the right amount. So availability, and then what is the right amount that you should be deploying every single month versus, you know, venture there where you get a lump sum and they're like, hey, this is the lump sum and, and, and you take it or leave it. The other benefit, I think it's, it's more than a benefit, it's more like an evolution of, on, on the way of running a company is that you think about sources of funds, you have long-term sources of funds and then short-term, right? So long-term is equity and venture there where you get like four years or three or two years, whatever. And then short-term financing is things like revenue-based financing where you get between 12 to 24 months, right? So then if you think about it, a company also has long-term and short-term initiatives, right? So you have long-term initiatives where you have product development, you have new, new geographies, you have kind of like acquisition of other companies, you have, you know, GNA, et cetera, right? So, and then you have short-term activities, which is marketing, sales, um, sales costs, commissions, and so on, where you know, if you have your, if, if you know your unit economics, you know that if you invest X dollars here, you're going to get Y dollars over a certain period of time, right? You know, your LTV, you know, your CAC, you can pretty much figure out everything with retention and so on. So then the evolution that we're seeing in a customer base is that they're starting to use long sources of funds for long-term activities and then shorter sources of funds for shorter-term activities, right? So what that means is that you use equity and you use long-term debt for, again, paying for engineers, for new products, for new geographies, etc. And then, you know, you use predictable you know, revenue-based financing for predictable activities like customer acquisition, sales salaries, sales commissions, you know, implementation costs and so on. Because you know that the return that those activities have and the return that those activities have is usually way higher than the cost that revenue-based financing has. So the combination means that, you know, you're using something cheap and predictable for predictable activities and then, you know, long-term money for long-term activities, which means that your runway can go for way, way, way further as opposed to using long-term money for everything. Because usually all these predictable activities are a sink of money, right? And is the reason why companies need to raise equity all over again because they're using all that equity for user growth. So if you could fund you know, user growth with much cheaper non-dilutive capital, the effect is massive, way longer runway and way faster growth. That makes a lot of sense. On the flip side, though, for 
maybe more the more pragmatic, the more careful folks listening right now. What risks do you see when using revenue-based financing on or maybe what mistakes do founders make or what challenges do they face? I think it's a massive mistake to two things. On the one hand, to use the funds for long-term activities. So imagine that you get the funds today, you invest them all into, you know, something that's going to reap benefits in three years, like a new product, but then you have to actually pay the money back faster than that. That can leave you in a tight spot, right? Because you have to return the money, but you, the, the money that you invest, the activities that you invested in haven't returned that money yet, right? So that can get tricky. And the second thing is that founders take too much money up front and then they don't have nowhere to deploy it, but they have to start returning it. Because then you're paying a fee, but you, you haven't used the money to generate returns. So it's kind of like, it's not as bad as the previous example, but it, it can also get you in trouble, right? So my suggestion would be, hey, it's a very valid tool, but use it in the right way and use it bit by bit. So you see incrementally. So don't get all the money up front because then like you're just going to return it before you actually have deployed it all. So take bit by bit and make sure that whatever you're taking, you're deploying into, into ideally growth activities, which is the highest return that you're going to get as a founder. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really good advice. And at CapChase, I imagine you're just constantly evaluating different businesses. Uh, so I'm really, really, really curious about, about it. And like, just what metrics, what data do you look into when evaluating businesses? Because, you know, like we're all about SaaS metrics here at ChartMogul. So I think this is especially useful for, for our audience. Yeah, absolutely. So we usually connect to three sources of data, banking, accounting, and revenue data. In the case of ChartMogul customers, you know, just going to ChartMogul gives us a fair bunch of the, of the ladder of, of revenue metrics and so on. And then what we do is we reconstruct all the like derived metrics out of those three data sources, right? So we look at LTV to CAC, of course. We look at retention and all the different sources of retention. We look at you know, rule of 40. We look at burn multiples. We look at all the kind of like SaaS metrics that you can think of. And then what we do is we use those metrics to understand the performance of the company, not only today, but also in the future, right? Hey, if these metrics hold, what does a company look like in 6, 12, 24 months? And then what happens if those metrics start shifting? Like we stress test the company, right? So what we've seen over you know, thousands of companies is that, you know, the best companies are like, the, let's say the fastest growing companies, you know, the ones that, that last the longest are the ones that spend between, you know, 35 to 50% of their top line in growth, you know, because then if they have their unit economics figured out, like that spend, which is huge, actually returns many more dollars down the line in the form of, you know, ARR, the best companies focus as much on retention as in growth. And actually the efforts focused on retention get larger and larger over time. And you know, the, the, the best companies have a net retention over 100%. That's no surprise to anybody, you know, like SMBs are on 105 and then enterprises up to 120, 140%, which is huge. Just imagine you know, having a customer base and just every year you grow 20, 30% without signing up any new customers. But that's like a dream, right? And then the last point, you know, is that the companies that have reacted the quickest in the last four or six months in, in terms of adapting primarily burn multiples are also doing much better now, right? So burn multiples, to remind everybody is if you spend, you know, like it's basically getting your, your burn and dividing it by your ARR growth over a certain period of time. So, you know, below one means that you're burning less than a dollar for every dollar of ARR that you add in a given period. And that's like, that's amazing, actually. Like, 
even like good would be like a burn multiple of two. So you're burning $2 for every unit of AR that you add. But yeah, you know, we've seen companies growing from 1.6 to 1.1, and that has an insane effect on their runway and on, their, on the efficiency of their growth. And basically what we see is that, you know, as burn, sorry, as valuation multiples have decreased over the last six months, the companies that are able to reduce their burn multiples, that means that they have a lot more time to grow into a revenue figure that even at a lower valuation multiple would mean an up round for those companies, right? So that became more efficient. There are basically two ways in which you can do that. Either they become more efficient or they get more money. So if you can get more money in the equity markets, you can get it in the alternative financing markets. But in any case, it really pays off to be much more diligent with the burn multiple and where you spend your money. That's great. That's some amazing insights. Thanks, Miguel. I would love to circle back to CapChase as a company now, though, because you're, you're not a VC company, you're a fintech company. And I'm very curious about your business model. Just because like I, as, as I imagine it, like I see like there's a certain amount of risk in how uh, CapChase operates. So, you know, I, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your business model and how you maybe mitigate that risk. Absolutely. So basically our business model, we make money of the difference in cost of capital. So basically we, we have our own source of funding. We have a lot of non-dilutive capital on our hands as well from credit funds, hedge funds, bulge bracket banks, you know, so then that has a cost. And then what we do is we lend that money to, to SaaS companies at a higher cost, right? And that higher cost, wh wh why the reason why we need to do that at a higher cost is because of course, some of those SaaS companies don't make it and they go under. So then we have to cover for, for losses and then also pay our operations and basically do all the, yeah, basically build the company. Right. And yeah, we are entering other markets, you know, like, sorry, other products for SaaS companies. And then we're getting into other types of like workflow solutions for helping these companies to close more deals. So, you know, we are diversifying our revenue sources over time. That's where the risk is, right? Like we need to understand the risk extremely well because if we don't understand it really well, that really bites into, into our costs and, and could even make us lose money. So we need to understand exactly what risk we're taking. And then the reason, I mean, the way that we do that is by being really good at understanding data and at forecasting data and then reacting very quickly as the data or the situation changes. Absolutely. And you yourself chose to raise a lot of money, as you mentioned at the beginning of, of this podcast. Could you tell us a little bit more about how this process went and, you know, maybe it's something that you've learned that you think, you know, other founders could learn from you? I mean, and the situation has, has changed a lot, right? Since we last raised our equity round, uh, but let me talk about equity and, and debt. So basically when, when we raised equity, we raised three rounds, a seed, an A and a B. So as a company, you know, raising money from a VC, like the VC is going to value a company in two ways, pretty much, right? Like one is the intrinsic value and the other one is the option value. So intrinsic value is like, how much is this company worth right now based on the situation today, right? Based on the current cash flows, you know, and, and, and at the seed stage, that's zero. There's nothing, you know, like it's only an idea and it's all future, right? But as, as the company matures, that intrinsic value should grow, right? Because the company has more cash flows coming in a more defined cost, cost base and so on, right? So that's a value. The option value is how much this company can be worth in the future. And that's a combination of storytelling and a combination of projections that you can point at by looking at your data. So then 
when you're in the seed stage, on the pre-seed stage, the company has zero intrinsic value and it only has option value, right? So that depends a lot on storytelling and, and pointing at other companies in the space and some unique insight that you have, et cetera. Then as you, as you mature, the theoretically, you know, the, the balance between intrinsic and option should shift more towards intrinsic and less towards option. What happened is that last year, you know, when you had like cost of capital of zero, you know, like there were no interest rates and everything, the option value of a company was massive always because, you know, like those cash flows that you're going to get in the future wouldn't be discounted at all to today. So then like that meant that there were massive, massive valuations in the market and also so much money to deploy. There was a massive competition for the best company. So then the only way to win deals as a VC was to give a high valuation or like better terms and so on. So yeah, how we raised money in the past was primarily, you know, through just having an idea that everybody understood and then having amazing metrics of growth, retention, you know, profitability and so on. And then you know, making a, a team of really high performers, the performers that people looked at and understood that, hey, like this company has good odds of being well managed by, by such team. And then debt is totally different. Debt is people, like if you think about, you know, equity versus debt, equity investors, if everything goes poorly, they lose whatever they invested. And if everything goes really well, they can make 10, 100, 1,000 X of what they invested. Debt investors, on the contrary, if everything goes badly, they lose whatever they invested. And if everything goes really well, maybe they make, I don't know, like 20% on a yearly basis over whatever they invested, right? So not that much, right? So the way they look at things is totally different. In the way that IVC looks at how massive could this become, you know, and they look at a lot of the option value, the investors look at how bad could this get? And what they're looking for is that however bad it gets, they want to make their money back, right? So that's kind of like how credit funds operate. So then the process of fundraising is totally different because in debt is extremely data-driven. They look at the portfolio, they look at the performance of the different cohorts that started working with CapChase at different months. They stress tested like, hey, what happens if, you know, 10% of the company is default or 20% or 30%, you know, like what does that mean for my returns? And then it is a very long process, you know, four, six months of data analysis, of negotiations, of structuring documents. But then what that means is that suddenly at the end of that process, you have a counterparty that commits hundreds of millions of dollars to fund the companies they work with. So then in these environments, that's amazing because we know that whatever happens, if you know, we find companies that fit a certain criteria, we have money guaranteed for those companies. As opposed to you know, other models like marketplaces where there's no committed capital and the lender can you know, one day give the marketplace a million dollars, but then the following day, they find an asset somewhere outside of the marketplace that provides a similar yield but less risk, and then they don't go to a marketplace ever again, and then the liquidity dries up. So yeah, it is a tough process, but it is absolutely worth it for us and for our customers. Yeah, thank you for explaining. It's just all seems to me like CapChase is just the the an amazing solution for like the 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 right climate and the right time. Is there anything you else you'd like to add before before we finish for today? Perhaps like the only comment is that right now equity is non-existent equity dollars are non-existent or extremely expensive right so as a founder looking at a down round can be very stressful you know like hey my my company was worth you know three times more three months ago than now so instead of you know looking at a down round i would encourage every SaaS founder to look at alternative sources of financing 
be that government subsidies or you know any form of debt, because the difference with a down round can be not raise a down round, get more time, you know, figure out how to spend, how to not spend your equity dollars on growth and use something else. And the effect that that has is that your team is going to be more engaged, your equity is going to be worth much more. And then at the other end of this downturn, which this will, this too shall pass, right? Then you can raise money in way better terms with much more revenue, more runway, and essentially you're going to be much happier. <laughs> That's a really good summary of, of, of this conversation, Miguel. Thank you. And just in general, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm sure our audience really, really appreciates your, your insights. This was amazing. Of course. Yeah, that was great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. This was the SaaS Open Mic podcast by Chartmogul, where we talk to SaaS leaders about the inner workings of growing a business, the daily challenges, strategic moves, inspiration, and mistakes made along the way. The best teams in SaaS use Chartmogul to measure, understand, and grow their recurring revenue. Head over to chartmogul.com for more content like this and to try the leading subscription analytics platform. That's chartmogul.com.